Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'll be talking with filmmaker Helen Young, who's producing a documentary that follows a team of senior citizens who execute a shocking breach in U.S. nuclear security. But first, we hear how the world's most spoken language is increasing in the Big Apple. In recent years, more and more New Yorkers have picked up studying Mandarin Chinese. And as WFUV's Lucas Bafara reports, those learning the language are as diverse as the city itself. The city's interest in Mandarin has created a competitive market for instruction, all the way down to Mandarin immersion programs catering to preschoolers. For the boys and girls at Bilingual Buds on Manhattan's Upper West Side, daily lessons and activities are conducted entirely in Mandarin. Each morning, students at Bilingual Buds shuffle into the classroom and take their place on the carpet. The instructor leads this giggling group of three-year-olds in a review of the night's homework. The students had to learn how to communicate hair color in Mandarin. This morning, the students are asked to identify a classmate with blonde locks. The students at Bilingual Buds hail from all different backgrounds. Parent Earl Carr says Mandarin connects his three-year-old son, Francis, to his Chinese heritage. He also says Mandarin fosters a better understanding of China's global presence. China impacts so many different facets of life that I think kids who have an opportunity to speak Chinese will be very well prepared for the global community. The surging interest in Mandarin is not unlike the short-lived popularity of Japanese in the early 90s, when people saw it as the language of technology. Chris Livicari, director of education and Chinese language initiatives at the Asia Society, says Mandarin is in a unique position to benefit from that Japanese craze of the past. What I try to tell Chinese uh, language teachers and again, administrators who are interested in starting a program is to look at the Japanese case and learn from it so that it doesn't really matter whether or not China's economic and political growth continues. Even if China is not as important in the world as it is now, let's say 10 years from now, your program will still be there because students and parents and the community will still want it. According to the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, Mandarin programs in grades K through 12 in the U.S. grew by 200 percent between 2005 and 2008. The East-West School of International Studies in Flushing, Queens, has been offering Mandarin since the school opened in 2006. Under the direction of Principal Ben Sherman, the school's Mandarin program has evolved and even sends students to China each summer for free. For Principal Sherman, Mandarin is an essential piece of the school's philosophy. Clearly, the, the economic future of the planet lies in Asia, in uh, China, India, and we felt that the kids needed to be prepared for that future by learning one of those languages. For 10th grader Roby Hanif, Mandarin has become a part of her life since she began studying five years ago, both in and out of the classroom. I watch a lot of Chinese dramas. I also listen to Chinese songs just to get like into the habit of listening to that and that helps with my pronunciation and with characters I try to write them as much as I can in order to get used to the characters. The interest in Mandarin in New York City isn't just limited to pre-k through 12. A growing number of business professionals are also taking up the language. In Manhattan's financial district, students at Wall Street Chinese trade their big desks for little desks and are instructed by founder Helen Hanying to turn off their English brains. While some students come to Helen for introductory lessons, others come to polish up on their existing skills. For Nick Mahan, who works in international finance at HSBC, Mandarin is key. 
I mean, I work in finance and have a desire to go back to Asia at some point to work again. And when I did work in China, it was obviously it was very complimentary. The business I work in is global, so it's definitely a, a leg up, I would say. Mahan has since returned to China on business and is putting his language skills to good use. And Asia Society's Chris Levicari says there is no doubt that the nation will need many more speakers of Chinese as the U.S.-China relationship continues to grow in importance. I'm Lucas Befera, WFUV News. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. In 2009, a team of unlikely commandos all over the age of 60 executed a bold and surprisingly easy break-in at a military base near Seattle that stockpiled nuclear weapons. It was all in an effort to raise awareness about the global threat by nuclear weapons. Joining me by phone is Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and filmmaker Helen Young, who's documenting this story and fallout from the events in her film, The Bangor Five. Good morning, Helen. Hi, Robin. So, Helen, can you describe what happened at the military base on November 2nd, 2009? Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. On um, November 2nd, 2009, um, five people, five individuals, as you, uh, as you have said, uh, all over the age of 60, basically uh, trespassed or broke into the Kitsap Bangor U.S. Navy Trident Nuclear Submarine Base, which is about 20 miles west of Seattle. And these five people are all uh, longtime uh, peace activists. They've all been um, fighting for uh, nuclear disarmament. And they basically were able to cut through the perimeter fence surrounding this naval base, which uh, has about 7,000 acres. Uh, they cut through the fence, uh, the first fence, and they were able to essentially um, walk around the base uh, for about four hours before they got to uh, an area called the Main Limited Area, which reportedly uh, is where uh, nuclear weapons are said to be stockpiled. And they were able to cut through two more fences there before they were apprehended by Marines. Uh, the area where the second area, actually the main limited area, is uh, an area that uh, is uh, a lethal force authorized area. Basically, uh, intruders uh, can be shot by the Marines. And so uh, these five people actually went there to pray. Uh, they wanted to function as citizen weapons inspectors and essentially expose the uh, weapons on the base as a symbolic wake-up call to the world, which they believe is at a critical uh, tipping point in terms of our nuclear, um, where, where the world is heading in terms of our nuclear weaponry. So, Helen, let me get this straight. They actually were able to cut through the fence, walk in there, roam around a nuclear base for four hours mm -hmm. without anyone stopping them. Uh, exactly. Um, according to uh, uh, court uh, documents, um, they were able to uh, cut through the perimeter fence using bolt cutters, and uh, they were apprehended uh, approximately four, four hours later um, at, the, at the second location, which um, is called the main limited area. What did they hope to accomplish by breaking into the military base? 
Well, as I said, these people, these five people are uh, longtime peace activists, and they were not in any way trying to uh, point out security issues or in Which any Which they did, though. <laughs> well, you know, I think that that's, that's a matter of, uh, you know, according to published reports, the Navy uh, has said that uh, security was never really compromised in terms of the safety of, of uh, the personnel and um, uh, the facility. Uh, but what these people really wanted to do was – they are peace activists, and they, their motivation was really to begin a national conversation in this country about nuclear weapons, which um, they believe is really, as Father Bix, who is one of the, uh, one of the uh, defendants in this case, who actually they were convicted in uh, December of 2010, um, you know, he, he says that uh, the whole issue of nuclear weapons is not – on the uh, back burner or the front burner. It's not even on the stove. So these five people wanted to uh, bring this to the attention of the American public. So how did they come up with the idea to infiltrate the military base? Well, three of the people, um, two are Jesuit priests and one is a nun. uh, One of the activists is 85-year-old Sister Anne Montgomery, who is a Roman Catholic nun from the Society of the Sacred Heart. One of the others is Father William Bixell, who is 83, and he is a Jesuit priest. He's a former dean of students at Gonzaga University and a parish priest in Tacoma. Uh, Actually, Father Bix is one of the most recognized and admired and um, beloved people in Tacoma. He just received the Greater Tacoma Peace Prize. uh, And how old is he? He's he is uh, he just turned um, 83 in uh, in May actually, and then there is Father Stephen Kelly who is 63 and he's from California. He too is a Jesuit priest, uh, and the other two people are uh, Susan Crane, uh, who is a retired school teacher, and um, Lynn Greenwald, who is a former emergency room nurse and social worker. Lynn is a mother of three and a grandmother of two, and Susan Crane is a mother of two and a grandmother of two as well. So, uh, and and to answer your question, what they did was, this was not something that um, they took on sort of, you know, spur of the moment or lightly. They they prayed about this for one year. They discerned about it. Um, and this is a term that I learned in doing this project. Um, Father Bix, um, uh, talks about how he discerned with his provincial and how he... What's a prudential? Uh, provincial, his provincial? provincial, the Oregon provincial uh, in the Jesuit order. Mm-hmm. Um, he essentially went and discussed his um, his pending action or what he was thinking of doing and received a letter from, uh, from his provincial uh, uh, granting him essentially permission to do this, and and there, you see in the film also that at the end when um, they were uh, convicted and they were sentenced, um, uh, his provincial um, did uh, mission him into the federal penitentiary, which is really a remarkable picture to see. You know that, that these um, five people, well, the, th- the three in religious life, were missioned into the. A federal penitentiary. How did all of uh, all five of them meet? Well, um, you know, they, as as I've 
indicated, they have been involved in the peace movement for a very, very long time. Um, Father Bix, for example, um, has been arrested, I, I think, almost 50 times. He's, he's, he first started protesting the presence of the Trident submarines on this nuclear base back in the early 80s. Actually, uh, the first Trident submarine came to the base, I think it was in 1982. And he has been arrested numer- numerous times for protesting and for trespassing onto the base. I should mention that all of them are members of a movement called the Plowshares Movement, which is an international movement of activists who are raising awareness about nuclear weapons. And there have been um, this uh, uh, Plowshares Movement follows the injunction of the prophet Isaiah, who urged nations to abolish war and turn swords into plowshares. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm talking with filmmaker Helen Young about her documentary, The Bangor Five. It follows the federal case against an elderly nun, two Jesuit priests, and two grandmothers who broke into a military base and were able to reach a nuclear warhead storage area before being caught. Now, Helen, what steps did they take to get ready for the mission? You said that they they, uh, spoke with people, um, their higher-ups. What other steps did they have to take in order to map out the area or talk to their loved ones about what they were going to do? Or did they even talk to their loved ones? You know, I don't think they really did that very much because there are conspiracy laws in this country, and they didn't want to put anyone in a situation of their loved ones of of being privy to this type of action. Um, So they met together, and my understanding is that they prayed together, and um, they designated a date when they would do this. But um, this was, um, for them, you know, purely motivated by their desire to speak out about this issue, an issue which, you know, as... as, uh, as you know, I've, I've written about uh, recently, uh, there has been a lot in, uh, in the press, for example, um, regarding the issue of, um, uh, of, of our nuclear weaponry and our funding of these weapons. Uh, just recently, uh, retired uh, General um, James Cartwright, who was the former chief of all nuclear weaponry in this country, has called for a major reduction, actually an 80% reduction in the number of weapons that we have. Now, Helen, what else did the Bangor Five have to do to get ready for this mission? I would think that they would have had to have some kind of maps or some something along those lines. How did they get ready for the mission? Uh, well, they told me that they had downloaded a map from Google, and they had studied that map, and they really didn't have any maps with them or anything like that. I mean, basically, a map of the base is on Google Map, and um, that's what they used. So once they got onto the military base, uh, and didn't someone have uh, health problems that caused them to have to move a little bit slower? Um Right. Father Bix, actually, he has undergone two open-heart surgeries, and he was uh, forced to pop nitroglycerin pills along the way uh, to um, basically keep up with the others. So, uh, yeah, you're right. And I know you said that the the military made a statement saying that there was no... um, that there was no security breach or I don't know if that's the proper word, that that security wasn't uh, at risk at all? Uh, Well, the the Navy maintained that that there was never any risk 
to the personnel or to any of the uh, whatever is on the base. There was never any risk to that, and that uh, basically the intruders were caught, and so the security worked the way it was supposed to work. The only and I don't even know if you have the answer to this. The only thing that that leaves me thinking is here you have five people, five seniors, one who admittedly had health problems, which made him move slowly, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, and they were able to wander on a nuclear base for four hours. Mm -hmm. And all they wanted to do was pray. Mm -hmm. And it just leaves me with that question in my head. What if they had not them, but someone else had more of a devious mission in line. I wonder how long it would have taken them to get caught or if they would have gotten caught. Mm -hmm. And the military never discussed this at all in any of the um, trials? Uh, n not that I've seen. Not that I've seen. I mean, I think that, um, you know, you raise a very good point. Um, I have not seen any, um, any response to that. Um, I know that... Uh, during the trial, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the prosecutor did, did make a point that the um, elderly intruders did put the Marines in a tough spot, and, and had they, uh, in fact, acted and, and killed one of them, then it would have been something that that Marine would have to live with for the rest of his or her life. So... Um, uh, that was brought up in the court. Now, Helen, what arguments did the Bangor Five use to defend themselves while in court? They said that they were uh, upholding the, um, well, first of all, they uh, wanted to argue the international humanitarian law and necessity defense. Uh, and what and is that? The international humanitarian law and necessity defense, saying that it was necessary for them to break into the base in order to uphold um, international humanitarian law. Um, the, the, the rules of law or international humanitarian law uh, say that um, uh, we will not use weapons that can kill indiscriminately or um, uh, inflict unnecessary harm. And they hoped to use those defenses in court. However, uh, they were not allowed to use them. Um, basically, they were charged with uh, conspiracy and trespass and destruction of government property. And um, they really were not able to uh, focus on uh, pleading or defending themselves via international humanitarian law. Are they considered threats to the nation's security? Any of them? All of them? Um, I don't know how to answer that. Um, I, I do know that um, uh, Father Bix is now wearing a GPS electronic ankle bracelet, and he's being uh, monitored um, as, as a uh, result of his sentence, and I think that that ends in August. Uh, Susan Crane and uh, the others um, have their own... Um, the, the stipulations of their own release. And uh, I know that Lynn, Lynn Greenwald, for example, reports to a um, to her parole officer or probation officer, um, as does um, Sister Anne, who is now in California at her um, uh, at the order where she lives in Redwood City. In your documentary, mm -hmm. you were able to talk to some of the jurors and some of the family members. Mm -hmm. How did they feel about what happened, about them um, being sentenced? 
Well, the jurors, uh, you know, the the jurors uh, were, it was pretty cut and dry. I mean, it it was a uh, trespassing case, and um, basically the five never, uh, the five defendants never denied that they had cut the fences. That, That was not in dispute. They basically wanted to present to the jury the reasons why they did it, sort of the backstory, and and to to talk about uh, nuclear weapons, to talk about their lethality, to talk about, you know, what one nuclear warhead, what one, you know, 455 kiloton nuclear warhead is capable of doing. Helen, how dangerous are these warheads? How destructive are they? Well, one, just one warhead on, um, typically the D-5 missile has four uh, warheads on it, and um, one of them, if you have the 455 kiloton one, it's 30 times the the heat blast and radiation of the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. So, yes, Mm. you know. And how many were at the base? Well, reportedly, you know, this is according to um, Hans Christensen, who is the uh, director of the Nuclear Information Project. Uh, he, he says that um, that the base has one of the largest stockpiles of uh, nuclear weapons in the country, although that, according to the U.S. government, that's classified information. Uh, so um, the the base does have um, eight of the uh, of the of America's 14 Trident submarines are home ported on that base, and. Um, Again, according to um, Hans Christensen, one one submarine carries the equivalent of 800 Hiroshima-sized bombs, which is enough to basically obliterate every city in the Northern Hemisphere. (laughs) So they are, you know, tremendously lethal um, weapons. Now, Helen, you said that all but one member of the Bangor Five uh, is is out of jail. Are they home now? Are they with their families? That you know uh, each, of. Each is each is going about their lives. I mean, Father Bix is a uh, is in Tacoma. He uh, lives in a Catholic worker house in Tacoma, and basically, Father Bix is uh, really, as I said before, a very beloved figure in Tacoma. He's also a very controversial figure. Uh, some people, uh, although they love him deeply, uh, not everybody is. Um, on board about the length to which he will go to advance his cause, and you know he nonetheless he is a is a man who has devoted his life to helping the poor and the homeless in Tacoma. He um, was instrumental in founding um, a homeless shelter and the soup kitchen uh, in Tacoma, and he. Uh, Basically, his life is devoted to ministering to the marginalized in society. Uh, some people, you know, have told me that uh, he, he's he's a modern day holy man. Mm. Um, and, and it's interesting because even though if you were to see Father Bix, he typically does not wear a clerical collar. He uh, he sports um, uh, Greek fisherman's cap and uh, <laughs> blue jeans, and 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 yet he is the spiritual leader to thousands of people there. Um, recently receiving the uh, Greater Tacoma Peace Prize uh, that's 
partially sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. And the interesting part of that is that as a consequence of getting that prize, he is expected to travel to, um, to Oslo, Norway, to uh, take part in the festivities for the Nobel Peace Prize wow. come, come December 2012. Helen Young, why did you want to tell this story? I, I just I'm fascinated by the five people. I think they're incredible. They're they're they're, they're people that one does not meet <laughs> very often, and their 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 motivations, the fact that they have such deep moral conviction that they would be willing to put their lives on the line, I think, is something that uh, really is a story that people should know about. And um, I really hadn't heard anything about it, uh, having uh, worked in the news business for many years. Uh, I thought it was a fascinating story. And then the more I got to know these people, the more I began to see how, um, really, how compelling they are as individuals. Uh, by the way, they were called the Banger Five by the by the prosecutors on this on this case, and so that's why the film is called The Banger Five. <laughs> Helen, how did you find out about the Bangor Five before making them the subject of your documentary? Well, I, I'd been interested. I, I'm interested in the issue of nuclear nuclear disarmament, and I had been I'd been looking for a story. Um, it turns out that a friend um, who had gone to testify, actually Stephen Leeper, who is the head of the Hiroshima Peace Culture Foundation, um, I'd been looking at possibly doing a film about him, and um, he had just come back from testifying at the trial and was telling me about what a fascinating case this was. And the more I looked into the case, I thought, wow, this really is quite interesting. And uh, uh, Steve put me in touch with um, the five, uh, with, with the five uh, defendants at the time. And did you attempt to speak with anyone in the military for your documentary? I have um, not yet um, uh, been able to get an interview with the military about this, um, but I'm working on it. <laughs> now, Helen, as a documentarian, did you have to stay impartial when making the film? You said you, you had a bit of a news background, and, you know, as a journalist, we kind of have to stay impartial. Or did you find yourself sort of siding with the members of the Bangor Five and their cause? Well, I don't think it's a matter of siding with them. I think it's basically telling the facts, and I think that what what I'm learning in my uh, doing of the film is uh, how much of what they are saying is actually reverberating in society right now. As I mentioned, um, uh, General uh, James Cartwright's recent um, statements and also uh, the recent um, Wall Street Journal op-ed pieces by um, a former senator, the former head of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Sam Nunn, Henry Kissinger, George, George Shultz, William Perry. Uh, these people who, um, who at one time were Cold War warriors, are now saying that there needs to be a reexamination of America's deterrence policy. So... Um, it's it's just really, Robin, a matter of uh, reporting the facts and um, in a creative way. <laughs> right. What was your biggest challenge in making this film, Helen? The film is still in.
in production. Mm -hmm. I have shot about a third of it, and I am at this point trying to uh, generate uh, grant money and other funds um, to finish it. I'm uh, in the process now of forming a collaboration with another producer that can hopefully help me um, generate the funds to finish the film, but it's not finished yet. We are still shooting. This is an ongoing process, and um, uh, I've applied actually to for funding from a number of um, uh, grant-making organizations. Um, the project was selected um, as a finalist at the ITVS, which is the in, it, it, which is part of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but it did not actually get funding. It was not one of the films selected for ITVS funding during the last grant cycle. But I am planning to reapply, and hopefully, will um, get the funding next during the next round. Now, Helen, if you had just one sentence to entice people to want to know more about the Banger Five, what would that sentence be? Well, I think it would be to um, to watch the film and see uh, the depth of moral conviction that five individuals can have for a cause. And uh, it's it's a compelling film that uh, tells us a, a very much unknown story, uh, a story that really impacts all of us. So, Helen, if people wanted to find out more about the documentary Bangor Five, how would they do that? Uh, to find out more about it, uh, they can uh, log on to my webpage, which is www.helenyoungproductions.com, or send me an email at helen at helenyoungproductions.com. Thank you very much, Helen Young. Thank you. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us, George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Study nuclear science.